You get what I want. You get what I'm getting. I'm just gonna go get the cup of coffee. I'll be right there. Okay. You know, entertain our listeners. Yeah. So the last episode was about the failure of my past company ship. Wanted to kind of share some metrics on it. So we normally get. It's hard to tell. So we publish on Spotify, YouTube, Mm -hmm. and iTunes. And we don't have any insight into iTunes at all. But normally it's like we get maybe a few hundred listens across the platform. And the last episode, which is why we are doing a part two, we had thousands of listeners. And so we thought that we should kind of dig more into some more cool stories and learnings about the failure that I had with with Ship. It also, As the audience wants. It is very, I'm not surprised because people, it, it is such a blast off story that many people know and many people use the product. So it's not like it failed because it failed to get customers. Mm-hmm. And so you could totally see to someone listening here, maybe as a repeat or for the first time, that this is a compelling idea and we should try and find more people. Or if you're yes. a listener and you feel like you are one of these people, like, you know, like the CEO of Rate that we had on where we talked about the success, but we should also talk about the failure. You could see how this could be a whole sequence. So I'm excited to pursue it and to dig into this. And Kevin, again, thanks for your candor. I think it, yeah. it really helps. That's what we're all you about know, here. It was interesting to me, even though ship wasn't available in Finland, it was still just a hot episode. <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's fine. I was talking to a friend and they were like, yeah, it was like, I usually listen to like how I built this for startup stories, but this was VH1 behind the music where they talk about the ups and then the awesome. crack habit and the <laughs> crash. <laughs> no drugs involved in this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so <laughs> the startup uh, version of crack. Yeah. We had a lot of different things that we ended up talking about. Yeah. So first of all, going Joe, back to you. What was really most compelling about this sort of wild up and down? What did you really hear and what stood out? I mean, you know, having been through own ups and downs in startups, I know, you know, we took an hour at best of t- telling this story. And I know there's so much more. So like all so along much. the way, I was like wondering, like, man, I wonder what that board meeting was like or you know, at what point yeah. did you start having your internal confidence shaken? Because, you know, we're all entrepreneurs. We're always optimistic. Right. We're always believe mm-hmm. we can figure it out. But at some point I went through this enjoyment where I was like, oh shit, maybe I can't figure this out. <laughs> and yeah, I'm just excited to hear more and want to dive into like some of the more nuanced part. Cause yeah. I think we got the, like the big beats of the story. Yeah. But yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing the rest. Happy to go in whatever direction you guys think would be best. Okay, so let's start with this. So was there a place somewhere during this process? If we think about now a long arc, right? It's a long up and down. Was there a place where you're like, oh, wait, this this is, a, this is like, this is the top. What would you say was the top of the entire thing and where did maybe the sequence of errors whether yours or not start to catch up with you and you were like uh oh this is not going where i thought it would go 
So I think that the very top was when we raised that massive round from Kleiner. It just gave us like so much visibility, right? Like John Doerr was joining our board, Kleiner at that time, and still is one of the one of the top venture funds out there. And it was just such a massive round. Like it was then then Uber's B and oh no, is that true? That might not it might, was. It was true. Yes. So it was just giving us a lot of legitimacy. And then that further propelled growth because people started hearing about us a lot more. A lot of our customers were also in the startup ecosystem, um, which was good for short-term growth. But you definitely want to have the kind of the regular people eventually adopt you. So we had like just a spike in growth following that announcement. And then I think that it was like a couple board meetings after that growth kind of just like started mm-hmm. to flatline in all of our markets. I think SF still continued to grow a little bit, but we definitely saw like yeah. Miami was going nowhere. New York was flatlining. LA, it was that was a relatively strong market as well, just because you had to drive so much to, to get like anything picked up at, or go drop off something at the post office or something like that. So, and also really good tech adoption there too. So I think that was probably like the top and then the start of the kind of the decline. But I will notice, or I will mention that we didn't really see, like the numbers didn't drop. But as we kind of went through the last show, like no growth is is failing. (laughs) If you're flatlined in a market and you can't do anything to like, we would try to do things like, more, more paid advertising, like how do we get yeah. to more people? In a consumer business, that yeah. is really not the way to really grow it. You need to have something that just, it has some sort of viral component to just kind of built into it. And we definitely had that, but we just reached saturation in the markets. And it was, so to, so to give an actual date, it would probably be like, I think we had our board meetings every like every quarter. So that would be like six months after that announcement is when we kind of started to see like, oh, there's trouble brewing. But as any entrepreneur knows as well, we have this like we had this eBay partnership that was brewing that we were working on for such a long time. And like I thought that was going to be. And so the team. It was like this is OK. We're first going to partner with eBay. Right. Which really didn't mean much at all. It was basically like. You, you could now, like, eBay had a blog post, which, like, probably nobody read. And um, then we actually, like, integrated eBay. So you could now, like, import your stuff from eBay to now sell it. But it was all on our side. So that really, but that took a lot of fucking effort. Like, working with a big company to sure. even get a blog post out. Like um, and say you're partnering, even though it didn't really mean anything. There was no real partnering outside of, like, us integrating with them. But it made them look cool too. But right. the biggest thing for us was trying to like that that next thing to propel us that I was optimistic about was actually getting inside of eBay's app to be that that if you're in an area, it's like click and like somebody will just show up and it's powered by ship. We unfortunately never got that, but that was like what the hope for me. And also, I sold a board on that too. And also, I think they believed it as well. That makes total sense. It's, it makes sense. You're selling things online. One of the biggest like friction points is like you don't just like Joe's mentioned, like he last last episode, like you have stuff in your kitchen 
counter that you just don't ship out? Like, what happens if one Sunday you just go through and just take like pictures of all the things you want to sell and like yeah. list them for like a dollar, and then seven days later somebody just comes and picks them up and then just se- sends them all, and you don't do anything. That's like a really like compelling growth story, but unfortunately we never got there. But it was with so many meetings. Like at that point, who's the CEO of eBay? I think Devin. I remember his last name but like it was involved at that level and we were looking to maybe get an investment from them uh, and unfortunately none of that kind of came to fruition but i don't think that honestly partnerships like like not all of them some partnerships can be really great but like i'm a big believer now in like controlling your own destiny and like we just kind of reached a saturation point in the markets we were in that there was just not enough people that wanted to ship Joe, um, I can feel you thinking. The, fr- the frequency that, that we needed. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm like, I just have so much PTSD from these board meetings. So I'm like. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's I, dig I into hear, the board meetings. I want to hear more about it. You know, you got a huge investment. The board comes on. You have a couple good board meetings. And then it's like, oh, growth looks flat. But don't worry. We have this eBay thing. And I'm sure you had a bunch of other stuff. Like how many board meetings until they you started really feeling the and what did that kind of how did that manifest itself? So I I think it was probably like our third board meeting after the Series B that we started to really feel the heat, and then it was like the board really like was looking at every single point of our execution. So hmm. like we were late on our ebay integration by two weeks yeah like, that means like you you guys know that means nothing mm-hmm. but like like the board was like what like like they're just up at arms like like what why did this happen it's like because it just took what well, we had to test more and we had to make sure that it was gonna actually work the way it was intended we're not gonna do this big partnership and integration and it just took longer like even though that's just what happens in the world of technology. That's why it's hard to put dates yeah. on like like future releases, but they were relying so heavily on that. That was one thing. And then they would just like, as they should, right? Now they're like, especially, so I'll kind of give some like, I don't know if I should tell the story Wait, or not. But I'm, I want to be really clear. We're not pointing any fingers at anyone on the board here, but I don't want to no, curse. This is just general board dynamics. you, yes. a co-founder John Doer, not Shervin Pishwar, we said. And yeah, Scott Stanford, Hunter Walk, and then I had an independent yeah. Rita Lane. She was really cool because she actually outsourced all of she was in, she worked at Apple and she outsourced all of the iPhone and Mac manufacturing to China. So like so, she reported into Tim Cook. She worked with Steve Jobs. So it, it was really cool to have her on our board. And I'd also say as far as like. Anybody thinking about bringing on independent board members, it's a really good idea. Because how board dynamics work, right? Like, you have, like, for us, Hunter Walk was, and I'm not going to kind of name, like, I'll just say just generally, like, you have your earliest investors yep. that, like, now they're like, oh, my God, like, we've made, we've marked This is up. it. This is it. Like, they'd be, they would probably be like, let's just sell right now. Like, let's just sell and just get our money out. And then you had the Series A investors. They're like, okay. Like, we still need this thing to be, like, a billion-dollar company for us That's to make it. money. Yeah. And then you have the John Doors of the world that just came in. They're like, we need this to be, like, a public company, like an Uber-sized yeah. company. Right now. 
Right. Uh, well, not necessarily right now, but eventually have that trajectory. So you have so many different competing, and then you have Rita Lane that like like was an independent who was I cannot say more from independent board members because they don't have that. Not to say anything bad about any of the other board members, but like she's legitimately independent. Like she had shares in the company, so like she wanted it to do well, but like she didn't have a fund to mark up, and she didn't have to raise the next fund that's like dependent on our success. And she also like, like John, I, I know really fought super hard at Kleiner to get this thing done. And he actually put some of his personal money into the company outside of Kleiner because he felt that, that strongly about the investment. And so like, you, you just have a lot of different personalities in the room and you have like the independent board members who get really good ones. Yeah, They're kind of, they could see completely independent. Lee, which is the name <laughs> and i'd say that as far as a board member goes in my experience like that like she was she'd also like really like hold my feet to the fire as well she'd be like yeah in, in a good way it's like this is what you guys should really be focusing on she totally understood the business like she's been in the industry before she knows it inside out like the rest of the board they have mixed feelings about having venture capitalists as board members because they, and you just, you have some today as board members, right? Yeah, but also just in general. And I understand that's the way that venture works. Like you take money to join a board. That's just how there's you can't not have that. But because they have sometimes misaligned incentives with the company as far as building it for the long term or Maybe they are raising their next fund, right? And they need a markup for you guys. So they're going to they're gonna push you. This didn't happen, but like behind the scenes, you don't know what's actually happening. So having like truly independent people that like hopefully are not going to be on the side of the CEO, right? There's a lot of people that will put their friends on boards and all that. I definitely would like advise against that. Like what I had with Rita was somebody who was like, extremely intelligent understood our business wanted us to succeed and like it was truly like she would push in into the numbers that we should really be paying attention to versus a lot of like venture capitalists tend to mostly and this is kind of i want the other route now with my next company airhouse i specifically picked a vc that really understood our industry but typically before especially they were very generalist. So it's like they didn't totally understand your business and like, but they had so much influence over it. Yeah. And so it's like, it's a really tough thing. But, but, and also at this time, and if anybody remembers in the last episode, like my board management skills were fucking terrible. Like, yeah, that is I, so important. I, I like, I came in and yeah, like thought like I'm, I was the shit. Like we just raised from Kleiner, like, guys follow me just like here's some numbers on a deck and like let's get this thing over with versus like trying to it, it's like it, you need to kind of look at like the board's job what is it ultimately it's a hire it's firing or hiring of the ceo and i just didn't really i just didn't really yeah, you like, didn't believe that. that applied to you no and so yeah so i i want to ask you about cities because this is something we all have experience with this was a phase in startups where Everybody, there was a logistics component to lots of these companies, mine included, Joe's included at Joy Mode, yours. Yes. Now, 
I was compelled, and this was a mistake, and we'll, we'll dig into that some other time, but I was compelled to open cities. Now, one of the reasons for this is I started in Canada. I had to open New York in order to get any legitimacy. Right. That, was, that movement was right. But many other opening of cities were wrong afterwards. And I know that Joe did it in my perspective right at joy mode, which is getting insane density in Los Angeles. Right, right. And now I, what I'm hearing from you is there was this, well, I'm hearing an error, I love to hear it in your own words, of expanding to Miami and then expanding to this other city rather than getting density in a single city and really figuring that out. So first of all, Joe, am I right? And then Kevin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, real quick. It was funny. It brought up a memory. I went and pitched a, a you know a top five VC, and they basically laughed me out of the room because I hadn't opened another city. And then you go. They were the, wrong. You know, get, I don't know who that is, but they were fucking wrong. So fuck them. Get it? <laughs> yeah, get in an Uber and go to the next meeting, and they're like, "Oh my god, I'm so glad you didn't open any other cities." It was just hard to know at the time. Like, you know, it really did feel really like land grab was the right strategy, but it was like. Hard to know. Well, well, because and this is the strategy. Honestly, like I literally like and and we just followed Uber and Uber literally yeah. called it. So yeah. Ryan Graves actually he he's a good friend of mine and actually an investor in my company now. And so he was kind of the ops guy for Uber and he would launch all of these cities and I'd get advice from him and we would just kind of follow that same playbook. It's like you're gonna have competitors. Like you got to be there first. And the thing, the difference is that we had warehouses. Like yeah. it's Class. not, it, we had real costs. Uber yeah. didn't outside of marketing and they would spend a lot of mar on marketing and giving out free rides. And I don't know if you remember all the things they would stand out of nightclubs and they'd give free rides home and all this stuff. And they had this whole playbook, but like it was just an app at the, like, that's all it was. They had, driver supply they needed yeah. to acquire drivers and they had riders and that's really what it was they didn't have the opex or the vans With or the, all the of consistent these. opex that would last five years like like a liability that is yeah. in the books perpetually the way you had but hold on because what i hear is it wasn't a liability but in reality had the growth existed in miami or in los angeles they could have compensated for that right and so so, you know, I think one of the insights maybe from a listener standpoint here is like TAM drives growth. Yes. And when the TAM is gigantic, it's kind of obvious. Here you had a false positive. We did. At Breather, my last company, it was a gigantic TAM, right? But And that allowed us to proceed to a certain degree. Uber had the most insane product market fit in a generation, it yeah. feels like. Right. So it's how do you decide in retrospect now when to follow the playbook of this mega success and when do you discard the playbook? We had no fucking idea. We just like, we were just like, we thought that we needed to be in New York before we raised our Series A. So we did that. We thought that we needed to be in like five or six cities to raise the next round. It was yeah. always, it was really like, fundraising based which is definitely not the right way to run a company and and then we just and we kept on seeing a lot of these cities grow and so it was like oh okay of course we would just launch another city right 
And then we only stopped launching cities when we started to see the slowdown and growth in some of our, like Miami was the biggest indicator. We just didn't see any real growth there at all. And so it's like, okay, hold on, maybe we should launch any more cities now. Like, how do we actually grow within the same cities? But the problem again, like, I think, so Joe, for Joy Mode, you guys had, I would say, a much larger TAM of people that wanted to rent out stuff, right? That's a common thing. And for us, it was just like, you just can't force people to ship more shit. Like, we we also, we would tell people, like, we, we tried to get, like, the eBay partnership by, like, showing that we doubled the amount that people would sell if they use ship. And that was actually true, which is a really, like, cool number. But still, like, if you only ship things, like, four times a year, I think that's what it, I think that's what it ended up being. Like, yeah. you can't pay for, like... So you're only going to have a percentage of the city. You have people shipping four times a year. You have to pay for drivers. You have to pay for, like, your warehouse. Like, you need to to break even on all those things. And then you also had to build tech and and everything else that comes with the tech company. It just, we we didn't have a big enough TAM. And even though we expanded it by, like, changing people's behavior that would sell more online and they'd send more gifts and all this stuff, it still wasn't big enough. And that's ultimately, like our demise i think that definitely like a smaller version of ship if we focused on profitability from like day one so like we went out of the gates 20 minutes we'd be in your house and like that was part of the like the magical experience and all this like if we would have been smarty smarter about routing earlier on and smarter about like a lot of the opex like we bought a lot like like i think our first warehouse is like ten thousand square feet and like how many people we hired and just like the efficiency in the operate in the warehousing side of things i think that there there could have been like a smaller version of ship but also we couldn't have raised the amount of money if we were a smaller version so it was like i still people ask me to this day do you think that there could be a ship that exists that was like bootstrapped and my answer is just no i just yeah. don't i just don't think it what you, I hear you need a critical mass is Joe, I could feel your question. I just want to feel the need to comment. It is many of these companies, like before at your 10 million A, it would have been like, now I'm going to sell to eBay. And like kind of, okay, that would have been seen as a successful outcome. But the stakes of a $50 million round, and I can imagine John Doe versus, and I remember my, the biggest round that I had at that time, where it's just like the Menlo $25 million round sells 10% of the company Uber sets 10% of the company. John Doerr, he says, and I'm sure a lot of thoughts go into his mind, but one of them is, imagine owning 20% of Uber instead of 10%. We're going to make it a $50 million round. Joe, I had you hold your thought a lot. What were you thinking? Yeah, it's hard to go small when you're like, got people talking those types of numbers. And you're... you can't. Yeah, I remember having investors say like, if you personally walk away from this experience with less than a hundred million dollars, like you blew, you messed up. And so you're like, fuck it, we're going for it. <laughs> so yeah. you're like, yeah. it's hard. Yeah. Kevin, maybe shifting gears slightly, you know, how did you personally handle just the like, you know, when you start feeling the pressure of like the board's coming down, the numbers aren't growing, yeah. eBay yeah. partnerships not working. Yeah. Am I running out of ideas? Like I'm getting squeezed. Like, I don't know. I imagine what we saw at Cloud was when things flattened your best people see those graphs internally and they start bailing and like 
yes. you know, the press starts leaking shit and you know like how what did that storm feel like oh man it was yeah and this was in the height of like competing for talent was just at such it was so hard Brutal. and so yeah yeah you and this is where like we you'd have to get catered lunches and have all these different things just to keep like yeah i know it's not a thing that I think that should be important if you're evaluating a company, but like, that's what you have to compete with. We, we, we had to compete with the Facebooks and the Googles and all of that. And yeah, we would, we, some really smart, if I look back to like the smartest people probably left the earliest, they saw the writing on the wall. And then it was to me to try to convince and replace people and get them to rebuy into this vision and it's all new. But people, everybody, we show them all the metrics and they make their own decisions. And so like some of our best people would start leaving and it's just like, holy shit, like is this thing coming down? But then we started hiring and this was like such a huge mistake, like more senior execs and right. we just like paid them so much money and it was just so stupid like so they, they are not the ones that are going to turn your company around at like, the time you mentioned the last episode you just threw out half a million dollars was there actually somebody making a half a million dollars a year in your business yeah with a wow. bonus yeah wow wow i, I think there was a guaranteed bonus too yeah yeah wow. and, and also this is how bad it got like i remember bringing in i can't remember what what consulting company that we had but like as we were looking to like get into different markets, what are some of the big consulting companies? That's like, oh, like McKinsey, McKinsey, and and McKinsey. That, yeah, that's who we hired, like to come in and like do all this market analysis. And like this, this is like, yeah, it was such a shit show. And th this is like the senior execs that, that I hired, that's what they're kind of used to. They're like, oh, we got to chop this up and we're trying to raise more money. It's like, oh, like, to present this company, we need to really like understand the market more. So like, I don't know how much we fucking paid them, probably like yeah. 50 grand or something like that. Just such a big waste of like money. And I don't think that people realize like what, once you have all this money in the bank, like you will just make those decisions. Like people come to me and it's like, oh, we think that we'll be able to help raise more money if we just get McKinsey involved and we'll be able to slice and dice this market and we'll be able to go and raise more money because of it and it's like for me it's like 50 grand it's like that's nothing like we're burning like up to 2 million bucks a month it's like it doesn't matter but it's so much waste like goes into like the business when you have that much like venture capital at your disposal which is why like my, now my stance like on and if we have any like early podcast listeners to, on this podcast like my biggest thing now is like Take the least amount of money you need to prove out the next right. stage of your company. Because once you have all this money, it's so easy to spend it. And you can be as I've, it's obviously possible just to not spend it. But I think there's so much pressure. Like imagine you have like the board that I have and I'm getting so much pressure for growth or to raise more money and all of this. Like, how can I not spend this money? Yeah, it's so tempting. Because to, that's the only to, thing that I have control over. You have $50 million. You're not like going to spend a million dollars a year. That's not what John Doerr wants, right? Oh. Not what you want. 
And no. so it's like, okay, let's make this thing happen. And when you're expect when you're expected to get the growth, you just find ways to cut corners, especially in this time. Keep in mind, Uber is also this is all in the context of the world of Uber and yes, the way we work, right? So it's like so what Uber is doing is they are at war with Lyft right around here. Yes. And so so they will do they will go to zero or negative unit economics. Yep. And the reason that it was right to do so, to be clear. Yeah. For them, I'm not for others. Because the TAM is so gigantic, if they if they don't succeed against Lyft, Lyft could take up to fifty percent of the market, creating infinite competition. And according to Peter Thiel and Maine, all of their profits go to zero. Yep. And so their best thing to do is to obliterate Lyft. And the right way to do that is to just take away their customers, steal them, do whatever that is legal and ethical to do so. Right. And so everyone else in the startup economy is pressured looking at that and goes, that's what I need to do. Yep. I need to destroy other competitors by doing every everything ethical and rational to do so. And the standard drops for everyone for what is right. 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 Yeah. So so that's where we were, yeah, still negative gross margins, which like is such a bad thing. Like also Uber didn't have that. Like they they made money on every single ride. Their now their contribution mar margin is different. So like how much did they have to pay to like acquire that customer or that that driver? That could have been negative, but like the actual gross so you have what you're selling and what you are paying for it that's what your gross margin is we were negative on that until we we shut down all the cities and focus on that in san francisco so yeah. we were doing something even more aggressive than the ubers of the world in the hopes that and there was there honestly there is we were a little different than uber and lyft before like the more you ship through the shipping carriers, the lower your rates go. So think of Amazon, right? Like the whole reason that Amazon's able to have Prime is because they could ship to like they before they had their own logistics um, and, and, and cars and everything. They'd basically be able to take all the packages going to like a single zip code and they drop it in the post office. So like you have a fixed cost and then you have your all of your units and so like if you get enough in that truck your per unit cost goes way way down lower right. and so that that was always like this business can only work at scale so it's like and also i would say that like we we couldn't charge a lot more like we we it was were consumer based it right? was consumer based and that's the real challenge yeah so had there been an opportunity to go in smb and you talked about how to do it then there would have been an opportunity to drive margin and and market size there. They were still as price sensitive, even more so than the consumer, honestly, because a consumer would, it, it's just the same thing as DoorDash and Uber Eats, right? Like, it's just the convenience factor. Like, there's a lot of people, they just wouldn't give a shit what they'd pay, but also some people would. And so it was, the SMBs was like, no, like to use you, like you need to, it needs to be profitable for me. And so that was why it was so hard as we tried to get into the SMB segment and, and go from there. So we were kind of at like, we didn't really know what to do. And that's when we tried to get into the fulfillment side of things and start, things started taking off. But unfortunately, we just ran out of time. You're in this situation where 
this is what's so unique about this story is everybody loved it. Like everybody yeah. loved it. Yeah. To me, on the East Coast in Canada, investors were saying to me falsely, you have claimed, oh, I could have been in that deal. I knew that guy back in the day. They may and, have knew me, but. <laughs> and they, I mean, and I was looking at ship as it was the number two to Uber. They had raised a $50 million round. I was, it was so impressive to me. Yeah. And so really, this is a consensus situation where everyone has consensus that ship is the next Uber. Yeah. And that's the part that fucks with me is typically successes reveal themselves gradually and then all at once. And here, everyone was wrong. Right. Right. Well, it's, yeah, because we had, like, we had so many people that just loved it. Press always wrote about us. Joe, going back to your point, like, like, we would get written up about, like, anything. Like, I remember, this is a funny story. We were at the, the do you remember the Crunchies? Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we were, so for anybody that that, that is like wow th- this is relic yeah this is relic I don't know when they stopped doing this so TechCrunch they put it on like a startup mm-hmm. awards and we were like a, a runner up for one of the top startups or new startups or something like that and we actually had at the time Travis from Uber his girlfriend actually interned with us and she brought her dog to the show for some reason. And and then it was T.J. Miller, the comedian, that was on stage. <laughs> and he started calling out, like, who brings, like, a dog to, like... And she just started, like, yelling back at him. And they got in, like, this back and forth. And then she's like, oh, no, I... And he's like, who are you even here? She's like, oh, I work for SHIP. And then, like, that whole thing turned into a news article the next day. Like... The yeah. crunchies, like TJ Miller is ripping into a ship employee and all that's like, we got written up for like the craziest things. And that's kind of what I'm sure you, you experienced this too, Joe, at Clout. Like when you're at like the peak, and this is actually something that I'd love to, like to talk a little bit more. There's just certain things that either like press is a real thing. Like you need to worry about like press picking up on certain things. When you're a startup now and you're like, just like kind of a nobody, like nobody gives a shit. Yeah. But like when you're at like the height of that, like when you're we work or whatever, like any small thing like kind of blows up in the press. And, but also on a, actually I asked Joe, did you experience the same thing at Clout? Yeah, it was crazy. Like being a consumer internet founder in San yes. Francisco, especially in that era, like, you know, it was like, a nerd version of being a rock star. Totally. The dinners and the people you get to meet and, yeah, the attention. It was really crazy. And, yeah, I'm curious. I'm sure you have some great (laughs) stuff that happened. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, a famous, an anonymous story that I heard recently is, uh, (laughs) fuck, what's the name of the dude? It's from the 70s show. I should know this. He's a big Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher. And so he was like screaming recently at a buddy of mine about I couldn't, he didn't want to buy a bunch of his shares and he couldn't buy his share enough of his shares and he stopped picking up the phone for Ashton Kutcher. So it's like you, when you're at the height of it, you've got a set of these crazy things that happen. You are just like 
in New York for me, this never really happened. I was always still an outsider. You were in the thick of it. Yes. Did you get the Ashton Kutcher calls or whatever the equivalent was? Yeah, I knew Ashton and he was an investor in the company. But what other celebrities, celebrity investors? Jared Leto. So I went to a Halloween party at Jared Leto's place with like famous people. Right. I got like invited to like Rihanna had this like ball in L.A. that I went to. I went to this like private Lil Wayne concert. And at this time, like I was my late 20s, married, but no kids. So I'm not going to lie. It was a lot of fun to take this in. Other people, I think Nas actually didn't, he didn't want to invest in us. He actually turned us right. down. And it's just, you get brought into like this other realm. And, yeah. um, and also I think it's actually super smart for investor, for celebrities to in, like, they have a very unique way of getting into rounds because like, why wouldn't I just want to have Ashton Kutcher I'm on Nas. my, yeah, yeah. or who, whatever. And so like, I think it's super smart for them from an investment perspective. I think what Ashton's done with Sound Ventures is actually super smart. He's in all, and he, I remember him on TV with Adam Newman. What do you remember that? Yeah. So I think it's super smart strategy for them. But also, none of that shit fucking matters. Also, yeah, had with some more stories. Had dinner with Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. No big deal. Like, literally sat across the table to him, like, yeah. talking about his, like, plans to help the Earth. I'm like, what is happening here? Yeah. And so it was, it was a lot of fun, but also a lot of that, none of that stuff actually matters it's, in the yeah, end. Like, it's got to be... And for me, it was just money. Like, yeah. Like my amounts raised were getting crazier and crazier, but I was still like a fucking reject. So even so in your world, it was not just the money, like everything was being signaled to you that this was happening. Yeah. How like if you were an advisor to such a startup or and to such a founder today, like, is there any way to keep a level head throughout all of this? I think... So for one, I would advise everybody never to start a company in the hype cycle. We're in the AI hype cycle right now. If you are one of those lucky companies that gets picked up, you're going to get all of these things happen to you. But the likelihood that you will be successful is extremely low because there's so much other competition out there. It's like there's going to be one out of like, hundreds of companies that are gonna like make it out of this so i would definitely advise not to start a company in like like don't start any company right now i think this is the worst time do it if you've been building something for the last 10 years like this is great but like this this is also like why i liked it what i'm doing right now like completely under the radar we definitely don't get as much like investor interest now but like it's just don't put yourself in those positions. If you do, I don't know, some advice would be like, focus on building your company. Like, take some advantage, obviously, have some fun, right? Like, when you can, but like, don't keep people around you to be grounded in all those different things that you can. And just try not to believe in the hype that everybody pushes you up because it naturally is going to be a lot higher than what reality is. Joe, what are you, what's your question here? What about all the, were there things you got access to that you've been able to take advantage, whether that was like taking money off the table or doing investments yourself or, you know, all these other doors also open that are 
more financial than than celebrity-ish. I'm curious what you experienced around that. So definitely had the opportunity to take money off the table. And I followed my, the Uber. So Travis, like not taking any money off the table. So, and like you hear the stories of Mark Zuckerberg is like, no, he didn't take any money off the table. So I did the same thing. So I literally took no money off the table. So at the end of all, at the end of all of this, like, that's why I had to like start Airhouse right away because like I literally did not have a paycheck and, or also I would have to go work with somebody else. Another story is that my co-founder, so he didn't stay with us. I think he left the company probably like three years in. He walked away with like 13 million bucks after he like sold that. So like. To be clear, this 13 million was offered to you and you said no. No, it, it wasn't. So it was more people trying to buy shares. I definitely could have sold mine. Like it was, it was, yeah, I definitely could have sold mine. But I was just like, I'm so like believed in this company so much that I'm going to not even like, and I remember some of my, my, my smart, like financial friends were like, dude, you're such an idiot. If you don't take this, I'm like, man, you have no idea we're the next Uber. Like, right. Because you're God at this. Yeah. And it, it was like, that is such a stupid thing, especially with me like newly married and like wanting to start a family and all of this, like just take like a couple million bucks off the table. Yeah. So like you have some sort of like cushion or something like that. So I also like, even today I actually don't angel invest and I am kind of like a one track mind. I'm like only, I don't advise any companies. I only do this. So the same thing for that for me, it was like, oh, this don't need any money to angel invest. And like I'm going to spend all my time doing all of this stuff. But, yeah, like af- afterwards, that would probably, pro- personally, I would say that was like my biggest mistake that I made was not and actually taking it. And that's on the personal any. level, and I yeah. agree with you, that what's <laughs> on the company level, is it like a hire, is it a city opening, is it the single biggest, most consequential mistake, maybe? Not understanding that we didn't have product market fit. You know, it, I. this is crazy to me because product market fit, if you go to, and this, this could be just the podcast, what is product market fit? And that's the whole podcast. There's 50, 100 episodes just on that. Yeah. But it's why I ask people when there's guests on the show, what does product market fit feel like? I asked, I've asked people a, a few times. This. And the answer is, you know, you know when you and, have and it. And you did know, Kevin. That's my point. No, is, I didn't know. I was pushing. I wasn't getting pulled by the market i was pushing it like we would do big press releases and new product launches and all of this i was like pushing this boulder up a hill versus like 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 having it go downhill and try to chase this thing okay so maybe we were specific about the growth rate so to me we'll just talk about what the growth rate was to me 20 percent month over month at your stage that's fast growth yeah we were definitely above that early on but then all of a sudden you start seeing these markets and they're like, like they stop growing and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, well I can't keep on raising, I'm not profitable in any markets. It's like, right, right. I can't launch any more markets. So like, what do you do? Yeah. And so, but that is the tricky thing because we did have like, yeah, you can consider it like early product market fit where we had all these consumers. But then if you really did the math, it's like, well, how many people are actually going to ship in this market? How many people do we actually need to make it profitable? Like, what does that actually mean? 
And it's just like, oh, it just doesn't actually like add up. The fr frequency of use doesn't really make like sense. So I would say that we never had a poll. Like we, we had people that would use us once and they would rave about us. So it was just power users that were, that was the real market. They found you early, but then everybody else, that's not product market fit because they used no. it once and they're like, that was magic. And then they just abandoned. Yep. Joe. Yep. Yeah, it definitely resonates with cloud where we had product market fit to a point mm. and the graph got flat and it, you know, you have to figure out the next level of product market fit and a lot of companies die at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, luckily for you, Joe, you came out of it and you were able to sell the company for us. And maybe that kind of takes us into the next chapter. Like, so after we knew that we were not like the products we were making, they weren't making it like a dent. Like we, we had a, as I mentioned last episode, we had a version of ship that was just like print labels, make it easy, like totally global. Like you, you don't have to location, be location specific, but like we were not 10 X better than anybody else. Like there was like 10 other competitors there. And then we were like, okay, we need to try to sell this company. And the, it's the famous quote. It's like companies are, they're bought, they're not sold. And we were literally like, we had a road show. It was also, here are some of the other perks that we have. Like when you have John Dor on your board and like, I got to give it to John. Like he did absolutely everything he could to the very end. Like he would take us for like a couple days on his jet around the fucking US. Like literally we would have like fought. We would go see the, like the UPS CEO. We'd see the top people at FedEx. We'd go see all these people. And like we'd go to like five cities in a day, and that that all, that was actually really baller. Like to to and also like to see to see John like he's he's taking like board like he ha he has his like he calls into board meetings on his jet, and like it's, it's like so could sick. you ma could you imagine you're just like a mobile you literally you're like I, I would rather meet this person and like th this company in person today. It's like, okay, I'll fire the jet up and let's just I'm go. Gonna, gonna and I could work on the way. I didn't even think that was possible to have proper internet on a jet to call into a board meeting. You know, it is something every day. It is. Yeah. It also, yeah. He would, he opened up. So this is one of the big benefits of getting somebody like a John Doerr or a Mark Andreessen or like you name your favorite, like top tier investor. Like they could just open up so many doors, but unfortunately we were trying to sell the company and we were heavy on the operations. It wasn't a tech company. And like, also like when you come knocking at people's doors, like if, of course, like people are going to be like, yeah, John, of course, come and see us. But they're like, they're trying to sell this company. What's wrong with it? Like, yeah. it, it just doesn't make any sense from but the like, numbers at this point were not bam. They're much more, they're flat. Sorry. I, for the people listening. They're not vertical. They're more like flattening, sort of. They were flat. Yeah. They were flat. Right. Yeah. So there that's where the issue was. It I for me, I look at it and I go, sell a company while it's blasting. Of Joe, course. Is this what you did? No. Well, almost. <laughs> we had a deal on the table in that moment. Uh that was a huge deal that didn't happen. And that's like a good story someday. 
And then luckily there was a rebound deal behind it as the numbers were flattening before they started kind of decompressing. But it still looked like we could pull up. So it was like, we got most of the benefit of the doubt, but not not as much. Kevin, I'm wondering, were any did anything feel like it was close to closing? Did you have anybody no. leaning in? No, it was just like, we're just well, like going to school and fishing, but not. UPS, maybe. I, I got to also like, be honest, I was like, if this is going to be aqua hire, they're going right. to be, it's going to be for me and like some of the senior people. I'm like, I'm not selling this company for nothing. Like, I'm going to get nothing out of this deal. Okay, and so, so yeah, because you work, uh, get a two year vesting contract or go. Yeah, to it's like I, I get like a high salary at like UPS. I'm like, I don't want to work for UPS. Like, and so, like, I definitely, I did all the motions and I definitely would say that I tried to sell the company the best that I could, but like, was my heart actually in selling it at that point? No. I knew nobody was going to buy it. We we also talked to Shopify at that time as well, and we maybe could have got something done there and more of an acquire thing, but it's just like, also I knew at the same time, and maybe people won't totally agree with me, this is at like the peak of like, we have all-star engineers. The whole team was just amazing. And I'm like, they're going to be able to all get jobs after afterwards on the warehousing side. Cause we also had warehouse employees and we had couriers. I was like, they're not going to want to take them. So it's like only going to be for, it's going to, I'm going to get an employment contract for two years to four years. So my in- engineers are going to as well. And it like may- save face. Right? Save, yeah. Bit. It's save face. I'm like, I'm like, fuck that. I'm like, I know I, I could do this again. I'm like, all of these things, like I'm going to yeah. take all of these learnings. And now I've been in this industry for the last five years. Like I know some secrets. And also the thing that we were working on was really working. So I was like, I was really excited to continue that on, which then turned yeah. into Airhouse. So I was like, my heart honestly was not into like do, doing an acquire to save face or to, yeah, get a, I could have got a job that any, well, I, I, I might I'm maybe unhirable, but I like. Well, I would say I, yeah. I I probably am hireable because of my engineering and in product skills. So I, I think that I could probably get a job at like some tech company somewhere, but like it just didn't like. There was no real upside for me, right. and I wanted to do this. I saw something that was working, and I hadn't seen that in so long. So I was like so excited to go and do this next thing that now was what we're building. How many investors followed you? I remember being so proud that my seed stage investor at Breather that made no money reinvested at practice. And that Schlaff, who was the Series A lead, invested at practice. And so how did it play out for your next company? Very good. Yeah. Like our lead investor was seed investor at the time, Lee Linden. He started his own fund. So he basically was just like, here's a million bucks. <laughs> like, I'm super impressed on what you were able to build at ship. Like whatever you're, he honestly didn't really even understand the airhouse probably, but he's just like, like pattern matching as far as like, here, you know, that the space, you can build a team, you can build a product, all these things. Here's a check. Uh, and then we had a number of other investors that that followed. I'd say all of the, a lot of the seed investors definitely did follow. We, of course, like the later stage investors didn't because they don't invest in seed. We definitely did have uh, interest from Kleiner 
so I definitely didn't burn. I hope I didn't burn any bridges yeah. there. They definitely took like quite a few meetings with us. But then I decided that I didn't want to have any multi-stage firms in our seed round, which I've talked about before. So yeah, it was really, it's really surprising how many people, once you've lost all their money are like, here's some more. And that's kind of the beauty of it in like, and I'll just use this term broadly, but in, in Silicon Valley, like yeah, broadly means the, just the nature the, of the underwriting model in venture is that nine out of 10 or some number yeah. will fail. And yeah. the result is if you're in that nine out of 10, it's like, that's just the odds. It might not have been you, right. but now you're a better operator. Joe, what's on your mind? Yeah. I mean, it's funny that I feel like as long as you are honest of what is happening yes. and no one yes. feels like you, you know, were unethical or shady or anything like yep. that, you kind of own your defeats with your success, then like the door is usually still open for you, which is great. Yeah, and that is such a, an important piece, which I think some people definitely get wrong. Like your reputation follows you around. Like, so if you are, you represent your numbers wrong to the board or you're really shitty to your employees or like you can't like, you can't maintain a team, right? Everybody keeps on leaving and people see that. Like y your reputation follows you around. And so as a well just in general like i think that you should look at this as your career and like that right. was something that would never ever jeopardize is my integrity ever and so things even when so when we were winding down in the company like paying off vendors paying off making sure people had some sort of severance even if we honestly we could i think we were only able to do like like two weeks or something like really small, but it was just something making sure that like, con like contractors got paid out. Like I would say that there was pressure. I, I would, uh, I'll call it implicit pressure from the board to keep going because we actually were close to raising more mon money, but we got to the point where I'm like, I'm just not more, I'm not personally comfortable running this thing into the ground where you hear of other companies that just go like totally like they don't pay any vendors they don't pay any employees like and also and what one one thing that the board is very like worried about is the if you pay all your employees what they're actually owed yep. because of that's Asian a personal guy. liability <laughs> yeah. yeah that's a personal liability on the board that is yep. not so boards have board and officers insurance that basically will protect them from any wrongdoing that the companies do, but what does not cover under there is that that you pay people the salary that they actually worked for, but everything else, like I, I didn't want to. And also, here's another lesson: like I was on the hook for a hundred k on a visa or what was that? No, an American Express bill that was like it might not have been paid as well and like so i could have completely ruined my credit this is before like the brexes wow. and everything like that there's some stuff i could go into that i definitely won't but like when you get down to like the nitty-gritty of these things like who are you gonna actually pay who you're not and so like i think we did a good job of like stopping the company at the right time to make sure that we had enough money 
to pay out everybody. And at the end, I'm proud to say that everybody did get paid out, which most people probably wouldn't have done. And if, and there's also lots of press stories about companies going down and people not getting paid and all these different things. And I just didn't want to do that. That was just not. This my... is, you know, I almost feel like we could do it even another hour. So I'll, I'm going to call it here. Let's call it. Yeah, but here's what I'll say. It's like, first of all, if you've listened all the way through to this and you listen to the prior episode or even just this one, you'll note we have this, we have a sympathy and a candor attitude here when we're talking to Kevin. First of all, it's sympathy because we're aware of the PTSD that it requires. So it's like, who else should we do this kind of conversation with? I'm sure there's yes. a ton of people that'd be really interesting, including the other people on the panel here, Joe and myself over time. And the second one is, what do you want to ask Kevin? Right? Because within certain boundaries, so long as he feels comfortable, I'm sure that there's like a million things would be really useful. So I want to thank you again for your openness yeah. answering these things. I'm sure it, to a degree, it's a load off your mind. Yeah, but also the bigger thing is that I just want to try to help other people not make the same mistakes. And yeah. that's what this whole podcast, that's the reason that we started this in the beginning. And I think that a way to help people not do that is by kind of just telling our stories. Thanks again for being on and chatting and Joe, close it up for us. Awesome job, Kevin. Right. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. See you next time. Hey, yeah, we keep it real and we bring you the facts. It's the Second Time Founders Podcast. Talking tech news, the show is a must. Not some billionaire trying to sell you their book. We're coming from a real place. Plenty ups and downs, got some insights. Join the discussion now. We being honest and raw, giving you real talk. We've been at the bottom and made it happen and much more. The Second Time Founders Podcast. More building, less talk.